Hi, I'm Steve Wood, recovered alcoholic, and welcome to the Great Rally Book Study. So, um, just a quick look back at last week. We we looked at the first forty members of Alcoholics Anonymous and by name, um, as accurate as we could, and we noticed that there was some interesting amount of you know, how many they had in a row versus how many, like at one point they had 14 failures in a row within the first couple of years. And all of a sudden they had like 11 in a row that were positive and, and it just kept going and going and going. And, and then we all, but we also looked at the recovery rates over the years and it's kind of an elephant in the room of AA. It's like people either point it out or they want to act like it doesn't exist. And, you know, we talked about, Silkworth's recovery rates, and we'll talk more about that tonight. But Doctor Silkworth, his recovery rates were, you know, two percent and a ninety percent failure rate. And he says the two percent were probably weren't even alcoholics. That's prior to A. A comes around and the recovery rates go up to seventy five percent success rate, ninety percent in some claims or more. And you know how the, you know. The record, we talk about how the record has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped to where it's, you know, with two census reports done in the 90s, you know, five, two percent, stuff like that. Crazy. But we talked about the, uh, we closed out last week with a very, I like to say it was emotional talk. And it was about the, what was going on in the world in 19, like 40-ish. And you, you know, or actually 55, because we were at the end of the second edition, or the second edition, and there was segregation was going on, horrible. Um, women's liberation had happened yet. You had two wars um, with Korea and World War II, and the people that, that were living in the United States from those countries were ridiculed against. And they couldn't go anywhere together or look at, any, look at anyone, and they didn't have equal rights, but they, they all did. So A was a groundbreaker in that way. Huge. Yeah, just amazing. So tonight we begin our journey into the world of recovery, and that's the doctor's opinion. Um, I want to begin by talking about the writer of doctor's opinion. It's William Duncan Silkworth, and you know they call the little man who lived drunks, and the man whose theory, because it is a theory about a physical reaction to alcohol change the world forever. It's a theory because, you know, anything in life you know from experience is from experience anything else is a theory. But how could a guy take a theory that works? Because you're going to see in a minute, he, you know, he worked with over 40,000 alcoholics before AA. So, so um, let me put up a picture of him real quick. I love some of these pictures. Oh, let me do it right. Hold on. Uh oh, I dropped my phone. Sorry about that. Someone called me. It's Fonzie. How they call him back? Um, so let me screen share here. All right. Hold on one second. So this is Doctor Silkworth, and and Silkworth. Um, he was a specialist in, you know, neurology. He also crossed into psychiatry as well. But he got his feet wet in uh, the psychiatric 
wing, we'll call it, a Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And Bellevue, I think you guys got a good look at them there. I'm going to close that down. You know, Bellevue was a hospital that was a regular hospital off to the side, off underneath, towards the bottom of the hospital in those days, they had the psychiatric ward. And, you know, um, you know, th those people in those wards, a lot of them were alcoholics. And it was during that, his time there, he became a, pa he got passion for, for helping alcoholics. Um, and he discovered it as an illness, that alcoholism is an illness, and that alcoholics had an insufficient quality of enzymes produced by the liver and the pancreas, which resulting in the body not being able to break down alcohol correctly. So picture your, your liver and, and slowly breaking down alcohol. Now, I have a stomach issue, right? And I don't break down food very well. So I, I well, I do it better now, but I guess it takes food enzymes to help me give has sufficient enzymes. It's the same idea, but a little more crazier. Um, but that caught that, that lack of, you know, that breaking down uh, alcohol incorrectly, that creates a physical reaction. And he called that physical reaction, you know, the phenomenon of craving, an unexplainable craving. You know, he also talks about it being a physical allergy. We'll get more into that later, but the, you know, the, the, that's all the body's abnormal reaction after taking the first drink, leading the craver craving, you know, person leaving the person craving for more. This physical reaction is coupled with a mental part. Some people call it an obsession, and it's just a reoccurring, persistent idea of drinking that doesn't spawn a reason and completely lacks choice. There's no choice involved. You know, it, it keeps, you know, bringing you back to it over and over again, despite evidence to the contrary, despite evidence that you might lose your kid, it's killing you. You know, they say because of that obsession, it all fits into a pipe. It all fits into your, your house fits into a bottle, your kids fit into a bottle, your money fits into a bottle, your job fits into, it all fits into a bottle or a pipe, whatever you want to call it. And so basically we have no defense against the first drink because of the mental aspect. And we have no defense against the second drink and the third drink and the fourth drink or the sixth drink or the 10th drink because of the bodily different part. Basically, I have a mind that condemns me to drink against my will and I have a body that condemns me to death. A mind that condemns me to drink against my will and a body that condemns me to death. Silkworth though, you know, this, this idea that this is the illness or you know disease i call it the illness it wasn't the first person that did it we mentioned this when we covered the history beginning of this book study talk about uh, dr benjamin rush who's a pioneer in in mental health he was the, you know he was george washington's doctor during the revolutionary war you know he was assigned the declaration of independence he's the first surgeon general um he declared alcoholism in 1874 1884 sorry a disease and, you know, he, he says it wasn't a condition of weak wills and sinful people like everyone said, and the press pushed. And that was a physical dependence that led to an uncontrollable desire to consume alcohol. And this, you know, this disease should be treated like one. And he, just, he, he mentioned, if Rush mentioned, rather than punishing the alcoholic with imprisonment or worse, that the answer lied in uh, sort of have a moral treatment, even though he could never figure out what that was. And all the 
press, all the politicians, all the churchgoers, they thought he was nuts. They were afraid. They were afraid. And one problem with Russia's with Rush was he said Stockholm's a disease. That's how far as he went. He couldn't explain why. Silkworth explained why. And that's the allergy obsession. He explained exactly why. But Rush knew something was going on. He just couldn't figure it out. And Rush had no, his, his solution was absent since re, he didn't have a recovery plan. Neither did Silkworth. Silk was the exact same. Solution was abstinence, you know, good luck, and no recovery plan. They didn't know, even know the word recovery, which explains his 2% recovery rate. And like I said, he said the two percent weren't even alcoholics. Um, now, other stuff I mentioned in covering history, we're going to look at too because it ties into silkworth so well. We talked about, you know, we we in the in the book we hear the word asylums mentioned quite a bit. You know, came back to the asylum or went to the asylum to get the person out, whatever we did. Some of us, you know, have been have been there. I've been on the Frankenstein chair, strapped down tight before back in the day, um, rubber room, whatever. Um, but I mentioned uh, alcoholics would wind up in these places and a lot more than today. I mean, today we got treatment centers and they try our best to you know, not keep them there too long anymore. But the, um, the since alcoholism was viewed as, you know, as a problem of the mind, the belief was let's, let's detain the alcoholic or addicts, you know? And the, so the press would deem alcoholic and addicts as thieves and rapists and gamblers and prostitutes and murderers and, you know, dangerous predators. And so there was so many people falsely accused before the police even had the stuff in the newspapers that uh, we believe the guy was under the influence or something like that, right? And rather than let these predators, you know, be on the, roam the streets, let's lock them up. and. Um, so they put them in mental institutions and there was rules in mental institutions. We'll get that in a minute, but it was in 1864 that Samuel, Dr. Samuel Wood, uh, Woodward of New York, because of his concern over the effects of alcohol on society, of course. I remember, you know, remember 250,000 soldiers left Civil War addicted to morphine. And there was a little bit more than that addicted to alcohol already. Who knows how many more? Probably close to 600,000 addicts alcoholics in the United States. So he, he's going to make some bucks. So he created an inebriate asylum just for alcoholics and drug addicts. You know, look it up. You can read a lot more about it. But inebriate asylums and insane asylums were, were different. And insane asylums, like I said, had rules for addicts and alcoholics. You know, they weren't sitting there going like this and totally crazy, right? So they did, they weren't allowed to do shock therapy on, on alcoholics or, you know, um, or doped them up and trank with tranquilizers and stuff. But when they created Nebra asylums, of course, they didn't put those rules in. None of those rules took place. So patients were doped up on tranquilizers, sedatives, and other drugs, right? And they were even given, you know, electroshock therapy. And some, you know, they would lobotomize alcoholics as known. And some of these guys' brains that get so scrambled to be, oh, we made a mistake. Let's just, you know, change his name and he would stay in there. And the treatment in the Nebraska asylums involved yelling, physical abuse, you know, scare them straight. But in 1922, Nebraska asylums were declared inhumane and closed. And they were converted to insane asylums, meaning now alcoholics and addicts were in full-blown institutions. 
And since the Inebra asylums all wrote them down as mentally ill, which they didn't do in the original insane asylums, now they're in the, 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 the mental institutions listed as many, mentally ill. So they're diagnosed as mentally sick, meaning these alcoholics and addicts were classified that. And they would rarely give the opportunity to leave. And these patients just seem to disappear, like I said, in the system. Silkworth, since 1920s, you know, remember this is 19, you know, Silkworth had been 38 years already in when, it, when the big book was written. So he was in the heart of all that stuff. He, he, he was in some of those places. And he left Vel, Bellevue and, uh, in, in the and uh, and opened a private practice in the twenties, mid twenties, and so he could properly diagnose alcoholics and give them fair treatment, take the problem head on, right? He had a vision, and he invested all his stock, all his savings in stock, but guess what? The stock market crashed, so now he didn't have any any money, in this in, in there at all. So in 1930, desperate and broke, he goes and sees this guy that he knows named Charles B. Towns. And Towns offered him to be medical director of Towns Hospital in New York City, which specialized in treatment for alcohol and drug addicts. He accepted the position for $40 a week plus a room and board. And Silkworth's plan was, I'll work there a while, then I'll reinsert myself back into society, you know, into another place. You know, a normal place, whatever, you know, some his own practice. Never happened. Never happened. Um, Towns Hospital, I'll put up a slide of that really quick. Let me throw that up really quick. This is what it looks like. You can find, I think the building is still there in New York, from what I understand. Um, but, you know, that's what it looked like, Towns Hospital. And um, that's, I believe it was, it was founded in 1901 by Charles Towns. But his mission was to make money, of course, to solely treat alcoholics and, and addicts. And so he did this thing called Belladonna treatment. And it's a mixture of um, henbane, hen which is a drug, um, dried berries and other plants, basically to clean you out, give you, you know, sit, you sit on the, the, the golden throne for a while and uh, get rid of intestinal cramps and all that, detox you. And get this, I said it was used to clean you out so you could do detox. They, they, they gave that to them every hour on the hour for 50 hours until the patient's face became clear. Eyes were dilated. Throat was dry. On top of that, they made him do physical exercise during that. So, like I said, Towns was in this for the money, and uh, it was a place for the wealthy. That Even though Bill Wilson made it in there, um, it was his, remember it was his brother-in-law, Leonard Strong, that got him in there, in towns. It, otherwise, Bill would never even made it in there because it was for the wealthy. American millionaires, European royalty, oil sheiks, detox there. The rooms were, the rooms looked like these fancy suites with personal bathrooms and telephones and bathrobes and slippers and, you know, the, kind of like the, the promises rehabs we see nowadays with all these fancy stuff they give you there. Um, but the cost of admission was about three fifty for for a four to six day stay. I don't have the mathematician mind to figure out how much it is today, but you, you know, you could probably Rob might be able to figure it out. <laughs> I don't know, maybe forty, fifty grand. Um, but Towns' advertising pitch was he claimed to have the cure. Remember, remember that commercial used to come on in the middle of the night? 
uh, like midnight about 10 years ago. And the guy said, I have the cure for alcoholism. That's what Towns was doing. Right. But it wasn't a pill. But he claimed a 90 percent recovery rate. And so this is what his ad looked like. His ad looked like that. Charles B. Towns. And it's got a little thing on there about this ad. It went up in the newspaper all the time. For alcohol and drug addiction. For over 30 years, blah, blah, blah. So it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, the thing about it was 90% recovery rate. We know that was bullshit because he so, so he hired Silkworth. Silkworth debunks that. He's like, you're a fool. And, but Silkworth could explain it to him. And by the time Silkworth, you know, by that time Silkworth was over 40,000 alcoholics. He worked with about 50, 55,000 all in all. So 15,000 after a 40,000 before a, the 2% recovery rate, right? Yeah. And this town's a claiming a 90% recovery rate, which Silkworth laughed it off. And because, you know, he knew a naive 8% failure rate, he knew a lot more than Towns did. And Towns is kind of leaning, oh, maybe he's right. And he, but, he, but problem with Towns was he believed it was a psychological and, med and medical model program, which is fine, but did not believe alcohol was an illness. Remember all, when we did the history, all the groups that didn't believe it as an illness or couldn't agree, right? And so forth, he debunked that, you know, explained that certain individuals who drank had that, like I mentioned, the physical reaction to alcohol make it impossible for an alcoholic, you know, to uh, tolerate alcohol correctly. We'll just say it like that. But Towns accepted this fact and handed the keys. He gave the keys to Tim to the hospital. You run this place. You know, originally he was hired, not a medical doctor, just a doctor, but he said, you run it. And also Silkworth's allergy exception um, concept um, uh, changed, we have changed alcohol forever and, and, and Towns used that as advertising pitch, explaining it to people. This guy, you gotta see this guy, you know, and his backers and stuff and everything. But um, imagine your Silkworth though, 2% recovery rate is all he's ever known. It's 40,000 alcoholics. Wilson shows up and over time, 75% recovery rate all that. Imagine if you have the passion that Silkworth had for drunks and you got to witness that. It's amazing. Um, you can find him on Silkworth.net. He wrote some medical journals for alcoholism, uh, Manifestation of an Allergy in 37. Um, 1937 was written, which spearheaded Doc's opinion. That's why they brought him in because he wrote that. And it was good. Also, of course, Bill knew who he was and he helped Bill along the way. Um, you know, uh, but his radical concept that the body was sick and, you know, not just the mind, how dark, you know, it changed everything. It got alcoholics and acts out of medical hospitals. Mental hospitals, see what I'm saying is, remember, they're in medical ho mental hospitals just because they're easy, this easily diagnosed as mentally ill. And this guy's saying, wait a minute, I've worked this place for, you know, 38 years at a time. I've worked at 40,000 alcoholics. They're not just a mental problem. It's a physical problem. And they're like, physical problem but you know interesting about Silkworth in 1945 he convinced him he went to work for um, Knickerbocker in New York and he what he did there he convinced him to set up a, a, a small it was actually a good sized ward for the treatment of alcoholism and this was the first general hospital in the US anywhere in the world to do so and hospital at that time you had to admit people under falsified illnesses like Dr. Bob did at his hospital um, like say alcoholics, this guy's got acute gastritis or this guy's got, you know, had a 
um, some type of headache or something, you know, chicken pox or something. But he served six years at Knickerbocker Hospital as director and uh, attending an estimated, you know, you know, I think it was close to 15,000 in those last few years, but the, um, a lot of people, a lot of people. And there was, um, he had a nurse there named Teddy R and A members, you know, they they helped him run that ward and they just were knocking people out as far as bringing them to A and helping them. Um, the one thing that Silkwood brought to Nickelbacher though, was he made it cost uh, effective for people way cheaper and that anyone off the streets, no matter if they're homeless or whatever, were able to come there. He didn't care. He always, his motto was, if, if we don't want it, sis, we'll never say no to you because about money. Never would do it. But so, you know, um, he worked at Knickerbocker Dill's death in 1951. And he, and Bill Wilson said, you know, thank heaven we, we started before, you know, Silkworth went so he, he could witness it. I'm going to read a little about what Bill Wilson wrote about Silkworth. He was utterly and completely indigenous to money, position, personal gain, prestige of any kind. He never sought this distinction. His work was his reward. His faith was his, uh, his faith was as firmer than our faith in ourselves. Without his help, we would never have gotten started or kept going. His contribution was indispensable. He showed us doctoring was more, was mainly a spiritual vocation and that the vast majority of physicians really joined the profession to serve their fellow man. The man I'm speaking of is our, our first friend, little doctor who, who loved drunks, William Douglas. So you see Bill Wilson's love for this guy. Um, a man who is very much a founder as I am. From him, we learned the nature of, of our illness. He supplied us with the tools which puncture the toughest alcoholic ego. Those shattering phrases that describe the illness, the obsession of the mind that compels a person to drink against, to, to, to drink, and the allergy of the body that condemns us to go mad or die. Wow. With that, with, without him, you know, bringing these indispensable words, A would never worked. Why he loved drunk was a secret only to God and, and the doctor. He brought, he brought you somehow to make your own judgments for yourself and the only kind of judgments that count with an alcoholic. How he did it, he just smiled and say it's a gift. He learned very early the unexpected was to be expected with alcoholics. And for a man who knew as many of the answers as he did, he came to each new case with a wonderful open mind. When, when no one could calm a disturbed drunk, Silkworth could. He found rather in his amazement that even the toughest and most case-hardened drunks would talk to him freely. And that many of them, even more amazingly, wept. Just coming to, into his presence was like walking into a light. He not only had a vision, he gave vision. Perhaps no physician will ever give so much devoted attention to alcoholics as he did. He never got tired of, of drunks and their problems. It is estimated that in his lifetime, he saw an amazing 50,000, I'm like 55,000, but... He treated 40,000 long before he existed, but he always had faith one day an answer will be found. In 15 years of his life and his cooperation with AA, 
he he ministered to ten ten thousand more drunks. None of none of those he treated ever forgot the experience. And none of those ten thousand many of those ten thousand were sober today. A frail man who never complained of fatigue in his last years, he ignored a heart condition and died right there on the job with his boots on. And Bill says, I believe A was his reward. All those years of prodding along, treating drunks, loving them, and giving them anything much as he could give. And then God said, all right, little man, I'm going to give you your drunks a lift. And when the light, lightning struck, there he was, right where he belonged in the midst of it all. You know, um, one last thing Bill Wilson said it was at the end of that. He says it was 23 years after Silkworth had treated me for the last time. I thank God for doctors. And he just goes on it's a little bit longer. But, but, you know, you see Bill's love for the guy in there. Because while Silkworth A may have never existed, and his contributions to us were huge. Think about you. any doctor gets scared today to tell you anything radical, even if you go to the doctor and say, well, hey, I took this, you know, this uh, herbal medication and it helped me a lot. They're like, well, well, you know, like I went to the doctor recently for a, uh, an issue and I told my spirit with the, with the, um, with the holistic stuff. And he's just like, well, I'm glad it worked for you. Like, you, you don't want to admit to it, but sober puts medical rotation on the line. And one of his, one of his biggest contributions, of course, is the allergy obsession concept. And drinking was accepted, drunkards weren't. And alcoholism was considered this moral weakness, you know, in sin. He changed that. And then this other contribution he did was, you know, doctors of pain and, and Bill's a salesman, you know, and, and Hank Parker saw Bill, because, you know, with the salesman part. And they knew they needed third-party testimonials. He knew that, that, that a group of drunks publishing a book was laughable. Again, risking his medical reputation, he wrote doctor's opinion. And that's giving A his endorsement and approval at a time where there was only 100 drunks dried up. You think about that. I mean, oh, there's a book coming out for drunks, written by drunks. You know, with all the stigma and false, you know, stuff they created over drunks. Um, the third contribution was was um, letting Bill sponsor at, at uh, Towns. Again, risking his me medical reputation, he permitted Bill, you know, to, to work with alcoholics at Towns, even though he had, there was no history of success of their program. And other drunks would have turned, you know, other doctors, I mean, would have turned Bill down in a second. Without Silkworth, you know, A may have never existed. Another contribution, he told Bill, you're not insane. When Bill has a spiritual experience in the hospital, and he's sitting there, and he's all, Doc, am I insane? He says, anything's better than what you were. You better hold on to it. I mean, doctor nowadays would have given him a pill. Say you hallucinate, here's a pill. Go to sleep. You know? If that would have destroyed all, all hope and faith, right there. Without those words, you're not insane. We may have existed. And the, another contribution, after six months of failing with alcoholics, Bill didn't know what to do, and he went back to talk to Silkworth. And asked Bill, what are you talking to them about? And he says, I'm giving them God. I'm offering them God. And he goes, no, give them the hardcore medical facts first. The allergy and obsession. The next person he talked to was Bob. And the rest is history. And I, the last contribution is 
when we needed money, he raised over four uh, uh, dollars from us. So he, he gathered it from other doctors. Again, risking his medical reputation. Imagine their doctor saying, who's, who's writing this book? You know, without our, our book, it may have never existed. But, you know, since doctor's opinion is the meat, it, it, it's just the meat and potatoes because it's part of step one. It, it's where we're introducing step one. So let's look at that. Let's break down. Let's break it down really quick. I'm going to put up step one up here. I mean, even though we, most of us know it, but someone may not. You never know. Um, so, there, you know, there's an old saying, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one single step. It all begins with step one. And we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Dash, our lives are unmanageable. So admit means to declare something as true as true, right? It also means to let in. I'm allowing you to enter, grant entry, right? Like a theater ticket says, admit one, right? Admit one. In essence, admitting you are powerless is your ticket into a new way of life. There's another saying, is the end justifies the means. That means a dark night, light, dark night. Dark life is necessary to achieve a new life. What gets you on the road to freedom is a pretty, you know, um, what does powerless mean? Because there's all sorts of answers people give you in AA. To have a little less power. I heard a guy say that recently in a group. I was like, it means if my power goes off, I'm powerless. Lights are off. There's zero power. But with it, we're talking we talk, now. If it's a human, zero power. It means no human power. We have no ability to solve our human problem using human resources. Why? Because the whole condition of mind and body that is impossible to solve on our own power. Step one does not require submit. We're alcoholic. Well, he'll say that step one is about admitting you're alcoholic. Doesn't make, doesn't, but rather that that we're powerless over alcohol. Being powerless over alcohol means we have lost the freedom of choice when drinking. Over alcohol. Before you drink, and after you drink. And you know, many, so many in recovery do not know why we're powerless. And people want to say, oh, powerless play plays and things and powerless because you're to your mother-in-law and all this stuff. It's because of an allergy obsession. We don't want to pee in the soup anymore that's already pissed into, you know. It's, we're talking about hardcore medical facts here that kill people. And you're someone's going to say, I'm powerless. So I, what am I going to say? I'm powerless to my neighbor across the street for pooping on my lawn and I let him do it. And the next thing you know, my whole lawn's filled with, you know, that's how silly it sounds. I can go, I can go tell them to stop. I can go get a divorce if I have to. I'm not powers of people placing things. You know, they say, you know, we're, we're not, no one this book says we're powerless over anything else, right? We're not trying to, we don't want to dilute this step. It's always up to us as recovered alcoholics to be at meetings to say that. It's the most important step because if we are not ready to admit we're powerless, what else can happen? What else can happen? That's why he has the ABCs. That's why the beginning of we agnostics, he asks us the question, if you, you, if you can't quit entirely or if you have low control, he's asking us those questions again. Even back to six and seven with the stones properly in place, he's asking us again. Step one is the only step we must do 
when people in the fellowships say that, it's it's completely twisted. People when people say, "Oh, so you gotta do stuff one hundred percent," they're meaning abstinence. That's not what they're talking about here. The big book devotes thirty five pages of step one more than any other step because Bill wants to be a hundred percent convinced that we're powerless. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. The rest of the steps do not. You know, you don't have to fully understand them to do them. You have a guide. Here's the truth. While we have taken step one, we all taken step one. The truth is step one took you first. Step one takes you. You know, knowing you, you know, knowing you need power begins the aspect of powerless. You know, you need power again. That's when the end justifies the means. You notice there's a dash. Now, it was Bill's, ooh, it was Bill's secretary, uh, Ruth, that mentioned, suggested the M dash. So it's, a, it's not a hyphen, it's an M dash. It's an old school one, EM dash. It's a punctuation mark that is used instead of a comma. It's kind of like an exclamation point. It's, a, it's to indicate a change in thought yet keep the same idea using a, a strong sentence to emphasize it, to make it stronger. It's kind of like a, you know, exclamation point at the end. But the word unmanageable is often misunderstood. It's the inability, the inability to manage and control your life and accomplish things without great difficulty. So manageable would be the ability to manage your, manage, control, and accomplish things with without difficulty. The main thing of manageability in step one is referring to being loaded. Who is who is not unmanageable when they're loaded? I mean, Mother Teresa, my, my friend Derek used to say, give Mother Teresa an eight ball, she'll be unmanageable. <laughs> but it's true though. But unmanageability comes from many different different directions. There's, there's the, consequ- the obvious ones, the consequences, jail, DUI, you know, Losing friends, family breakups, failed relationships, car accidents, you know, rehabs, whatever it is, losing your job. But then there's the insanity that we can't stop drinking. The insanity of the first drink where you don't even know what you picked up. And Bill had mentioned in an interview, there's the unimaginability you experience when you're bone dry. And that's being restless, irritable, and discontent which is a complete mindset of high anxiety, being easily pissed off and never being satisfied at all. All crammed together. That's in between runs, that's being dry in recovery with no steps. We've all been there someplace in time. It's the way we think, act and behave and deal with life, period. The big book calls this unmentionably main thing, the spiritual malady, spiritual sickness and insanity. Um, I like to call it untreated alcoholism, period. Gets to the point. If I continue to, to experience that type of imaginability, eventually a mind's going to seek out ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. That imaginability we've had since we were, you know, a kid. The only cure we knew was alcohol. Unmanageability is only overcome by doing 49 and living, living and 49 and 10 and talking to God and, and celebrating this life in 11 and being altruistic in 12. 
helping others. I remember people say step one is the only non-spiritual step. Bullshit. It might be the most spiritual step because you're admitting powerlessness and powerless pushes you to seek power. People say we do the spiritual part of the program. It's all. So let's go to X, X, V, doctor's opinion. Very beginning of doctor's opinion. One thing I want to read first before we, we start is uh, many people call it, I used to call it a disease concept. And, and it, for, for many reasons, Joe McQuaid from Joe and Charlie used to say, disease with a hyphen in, in between this and ease, away from ease, right? Um, but I call it, now I call it an illness because Bill Wilson's, what Bill Wilson explained in 1960, and I'm gonna read what he said. Um, he says, uh, this is from my letter to the great pine, I believe. He says, we AAers have never called alcoholism a disease because technically speaking, it's not a disease. For example, there's no such thing as heart disease. Instead, there are many ailments, separate uh, ailments or combinations of them. It is something something like that with alcoholism. Therefore, we do not wish to, to get into the wrong medical profession, wrong with the medical profession by pronouncing alcoholism a disease entirely. Hence, we've always called it an illness or a malady, a far safer term. So here we go, Doc is clean. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's all about the first one, I believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of plan of recovery described in this book. Look at that, the medical estimate. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have experienced the suffering of our members and have witnessed our return to health. So I can should, shut this down, sorry. <laughs> um, return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician of a nationally prominent hospital, Charles B. Towns Hospital, special in treatment of alcohol and drug addiction. Oh, there's drug addiction mentioned in the big book. Be careful. Don't mention that at meetings. Just, you know, so, you know, this is, you know, this is for everyone. Just like that's what Big Book of Pain is about right there. You know, gave alcohol synonymous this letter. The doctor, you know, this doctor's opinion is universal. I didn't understand that when I got here because I was always told you go to A for alcohol, you go to any for addiction, all this crap. And first person I ever took to the rehab after hearing about five pistols on the outside was a heroin addict. My sponsor said, read in the book. And he's like, that's me, that's me. And doctor's pain. Boom. So, you know, still give me goosebumps thinking about it. So to who it may concern, I put my name, I always have my name written there in the book, you know, I have specialized in treatment of alcoholism for many years. That's 38 years at a time. This is around 37, he wrote this when the big book was really in the heat of writing it. Um, in late 1934, I attended a patient, that's Bill, who though he had a, was a comp, had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of the type I regard, I came regarded as hopeless. Hopeless means is you're impossible, something impossible to solve. Remember I talk about the pine box you know, a hopeless condition of mind and body. In the course of his third treatment, actually, if you read some of his other books, I think he went there four times, but I'm not gonna argue with it. In the course of his third treatment, um, you know, like someone has been in rehab multiple times, he acquired certain ideas, in this case, spiritual ones, concerning a possible means of recovery. You know, wow, for him to see that. 
As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his concession to other alcoholics, impressing upon them they must, I underline that, must do likewise with still others. This book is 103 must in it, I believe. What is a must? It's an it's a essential requirement, something that is so important it can't be missed or ignored or neglected. It's an absolute necessity. So underline those musts when you come across them. So it's those requirements. We must work with others. And anyone that has relapsed and says, oh, I do the steps, but so they don't work. Well, did you sponsor? Nope. Or did you do your 10 steps? Nope. I always came across that. I've never known anyone that's done the steps and used. And I always come across some holes. I don't sponsor. I can't. Or I can't make my amends. I did a few of them. So it says here, this has become the basis of rapidly growing fellowship of these men and women and their families. And this is a doctor saying this. Take in mind, this man and over 100 others have appeared to recover. The basis, so, of their fellowship was working with others, passing on the exact same spiritual ideas to another, to another, to another. Bill Wilson called it chain style. That was the basis of their fellowship at that time. That's another word for, for basis we would, would be foundation. Is that the foundation of AA today? Working with other people. You know? Is it, or is it meetings? It's not about how many fist steps people here. You know, a death note of success is how much time you have. How about how much time you put into it? Right? What's the basis of your recovery? Is a great, better question. How many of you led to a spiritual awakening? How many of you helped getting well? You know, there's a, you know, a bold statement. That's a bold statement by a doctor who has worked with 40,000 alcoholics at 2% recovery rate. He said over 100 of them have recovered. You know, this guy saw, in 30 years, he only saw 800 people recover out of 40,000. That's 2%. 800 out of 40,000. And you didn't know those 800 were alcoholics. And now he's seen 100. I think he's a little bit, like, blown away waiting for it to happen so he says I personally know scores scores is funny of cases where the type of with other methods had failed completely he's never seen anything like this the, these facts appear to extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherit the group they may mark a new apah means new era in the annals of alcoholism these men well have a remedy well I'm sorry may well have a remedy for thousands of such cases so he knew that they were on something and he knew this could change the world help millions and look what he says about an alcoholic you may absolutely rely on anything they say about themselves when is an alcoholic lying when their mouth's moving right that's the old joke you may absolutely rely now thinking about this for a second there was no such thing as recovery. There was, you know, a good recovery for alcoholic was, was, 
you did your detox and maybe got six days and drank a couple of days and detoxed again or cleaned up again for a few days. You say you may rely on anything what these drunks say about themselves, where the press push and all that. But look at the endorsement there. Everything they say about themselves, this comes from a doctor. If people in the fellowships, you know, when, when I speak of the book, they say, take what you want and leave the rest. What? Ugh. It is very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. All right. The, phys the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to it and enlarges upon his views and their statement that follows. And his statement he confirms what we who have had suffered alcoholic torture. I'm sorry. That's my place. Confirms alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as normal as the mind. Alcoholic, you know, is, you know, in, insane. They were in insane asylums, like I, like we, we talked about. They were mentally insane because they looked at alcohol as a mental problem. Only. What Silver discovered is the body. Brand new radical concept. It did not satisfy us to be told we cannot control our drinking just because we're maladjusted to life, that we're full fright from reality and outright mental defectives. Right there is the old diagnosis. That's the pre-AA pre diagnosis of alcoholics, that they are maladjusted to life, full fight reality, outright mental defectives. And he's saying it did not satisfy us to be told that we cannot control our drinking. So all these alcoholics are never satisfied with that diagnosis. But that's the old diagnosis to the alcoholics. They were insane, mouse life, full from reality, and mental, you know, mental defects. He's crazy, he put them in the room, lock the door, and throw away the key. That's why they got lost in the system. This back to book. These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. You know, the reason why hospitals like towns popped up treating alcohol and drug addiction is they didn't look at alcoholics anymore as mental patients, but there was still lots of alcoholics, you know, being put in institutions. Even to this day, doped up. You know, look at all the alcoholics, look at all the addicts in prison. You know, look at all the addicts in prison. Uh, and alcoholics too. You know, some guy got freed in California recently because he was falsely accused of a DUI. How do you get falsely accused of a DUI? And he was looking at 30 years and he got out to 12. Of a DUI where someone got killed. Um, Back to the book. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. Why is it incomplete? Because the physical factor, the craving for more, once we start, makes us an alcoholic. That means that the obsession is, it, it of course brings us back to it. But the real thing is, how many people have obsessions with drugs or alcohol, but don't have the allergy? They might pick up the drink, but they're not going to, that. oh, I better stop. You know, you know the, the doctor discovered the missing link for these for the, the food this book is written for the real alcoholic. The doctor's theory of an allergy interests us as laymen. Our opinions, as it sound, as it as to it seem, sound sound may of course mean little. But as ex parliament drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. 
explains many things which otherwise we cannot account. Alcoholics, you know, related with this concept because they, it, it was what they, that's why they called it a phenomenon. Why do I, why did I can't stop drinking? They could have put it in the words and he put it in the words for them. Here's what you got. And, it, and they're like, yeah. You know what it was like? I mean, I remember I sat to A meetings. I never heard allergy obsession thing for, you know, for a while. And when someone explained it to me, I was like, yeah. So as though we, though we work our solution as spiritual as well as the altruistic as the unselfish plane, we favor hospitalization of the alcoholic is very jittery befogged. That's very important. Because some guy calls you up and he goes, hey, he's drunk, so can you work with me? And well, I recommend detox. There's nothing I can tell you right now anyways. They don't want detox, you know, then nothing you can do. Um, more often than not, it's important that the man's, here's why, the man's brain be cleared before he's approached, as then there's a better chance of understanding, accepting what we have to offer. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to be of paramount importance to those that look at the alcoholism. Paramount is the highest peak of a mountain's range. Highest peak. Some highest peak. Like where the Paramount, you know, um, studios picture. I say this after many years of experience as a medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There, there was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which, which is covered such masterly details on your pages. There's another endorsement. We, we doctors have realized for a long time that some moral psychology, that's what um, Benjamin Rush said. Moral psychology is studying the development of moral character development. You want to develop the person's character to make them better. We doctors have realized that some, oh, I just read the same part. Um, so he says, we doctors have realized some form of moral psychology was important to alcoholics, but its application presented difficult and was beyond our conception, meaning he didn't know how to do it, neither did Rush. You know, that's why there's no recovery plan with those guys. Now, look what he says here. With their ultra modern standards, remember what was happening in the 30s. You had the ICU was coming into play, you know. He had the polio vaccines were not far off. So there was x-rays and all sorts of things were happening. With our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. I'm going to reread that paragraph in layman's language, what he's saying here. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual experience was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With our ultra-modern standard, our scientific approach to everything, we doctors perhaps could not, are perhaps not really equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our human knowledge. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Back to the book. Because many years ago, one of the leading contributors of this book came under, under the care in this hospital, and while he was while he acquired some some ideas, which he put in practical application, in a week, no, at once. I explained to those I work with as soon as as you get around step nine, you know, 
you start to give it away. You know, maybe even before then, from the practical application at once, you know, right away. Later, he required the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients with some misgivings we consented. So he probably thought about it and said, I don't got nothing to lose. You know, so he was kind of, uh, you know, should we, you know, this guy who just, you know, had a spiritual experience in my hospital, you know, now wants to wander around. He's in charge. So, you know, he saw something special happening. The case we have followed have been most interesting. In fact, and here's a, here's a non-medical word. Many of them are amazing. Amazing is not a medical term. You don't have a doctor. Oh, that's amazing. You know, you don't hear it that often. It's another endorsement. The unselves of, of, of these men, as we come to know them, the entire absolute profit motive, their community spirit is indeed inspiring when one who's labored long and hard and, and the weary and weary in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more power that pulls chronic alcoholics from the gates of death. So another endorsement right there. You know, he knew them. He knew these guys. These guys had been in his hospital. You know, later on Doxapan, he talks about this one guy was a drunk and he came back unrecognizable. Well, it's Hank Parker's. You know, now they're recovered. And he felt he was a failure as a doctor for not treating alcoholics. When he was fit, he was a failure. Alcoholics, you know, came back from death. I mean, he must have been a little blown away again. Let's see what it says here. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for alcohol, and this often requires a definite, a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be taken to maximum benefit. We're going to stop right there. It means detox, right? Detox is a lot safer nowadays, you know? And even easier nowadays than it was 23 years ago for me. Nowadays, it just gives something that knocks them out for three days, you know? Next week, we're going to um, pick off just where we left off. We're, we're going to get into, we read about the old diagnosis, right, of alcoholics, the outright mental effects and all that. Now we're going to read the new diagnosis, We'll read the paragraph we we believe and so suggested next week and that's my one of my favorite in the book i'm going to stop right there recording stopped all right any questions or statements or rebuttals <laughs> morning everybody i'm kicking an alcoholic from sweden yeah i will just i'm so grateful to silkworth and i have a new kind of dr silkworth <laughs> by myself to help me that's nice thank you and thank you stephen rock thank you kick in <laughs> Who else wants to talk here? I know Summer always has a question. She may not be there. 
I'm here. I'm here. Um, I mean, I always have questions. Yeah. Can you can you just come back to me in a second? Because I have to go through all my notes and hold on. Okay. Okay. Come back right to me, and I do have some questions. Once she comes back, what about Ali? <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I'm sitting here uh, scratching my head trying to figure out what questions I have. I, I don't know if it's you explaining it that well, but I, nothing comes to mind right now. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is perfect, man. Oh, wow. All right. Summer, are you there? But I, I might hey. think. Steve? Hi. Juno Pollock. Hey, are are there um, any other books on Silkworth besides The Little Doctor Who Loved Drunks? Um, a lot more information has come out online. But there was, see, when I first went to book studies, talking 2000, um, I was writing, the, you know, going to the guys with book studies, been doing them for 10 or 15 years who were doing the Joe and Charlie thing. And they would pass out, when we do Doxpan, they would pass out like a, they would give you a booklet to take home and read or to just read it there. It was like a history that they put together. So it was like, there's a lot of stuff like that floating around, but it's just, the internet has changed everything. We know that, right? Right. There's a lot of good stuff you can find, but it's also, you know, I mean, I like to read everything, controversial stuff even, but Silkworth's, um, there was an, another book, and someone must have put it in the chat. I don't remember what it was called, but there's ones. Um, Slaying the Dragon's really good. There's about so much so in there. I know that one, yeah. Um, it's just that, you know, I can't. The Little Doctor Who Loved Drunks, have you seen what that book runs? The cheapest. No. Yeah, I just looked it up again because I check every once in a while, like whenever I'm in a meeting and. We're talking about him, two hundred and fifty dollars, all the way up to five hundred dollars. Wow! <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, there is a guy out of Canada, and I don't remember his name, but he takes Rob. You have to get <laughs> no, it's not Rob, but you have to get to kind of know him. But what he does is a lot of the books that are that are um, overpriced and you know, out of print. He gives you on. He'll just give you on a PDF. You know, but um, he gave my friend a couple PDFs. Uh, so it's hard to find. There's a lot. I mean, unfortunately, that's the way it is. But like, I'm hoping that someone takes that book and, you know, like they did with the Red Book, because the Red Book, Little Red Book for a while was like 200 bucks. And then they, they finally started putting more out of the original. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, we got Doug. Mm -hmm. Yes, hi. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. My name's Doug. Well, thank you, Steve. That was uh, that was very insightful. I mean, that, that that dash part that you talked about in step one. What did you call that again? That was not oh, a dash. It's so, called the M dash. M dash. M dash. Yeah. And oh. I went to a archivist thing many years ago, and this guy explained. They brought this guy. He sounded like a I think I was the only person in the room that didn't think it was boring, but 
he explained all that. I thought it was fascinating. And then I've heard other people call it that too as well. It's just an old school punctuation mark. Yeah, and, and so would this also be one where he says, uh, in the doctor's opinion, he says, in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. And then there's that dash again. Right. That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Right. And I was always told this is the first must. Right. You must believe. Like the whole thing's not going to work unless you buy into the, you know, my body and mine. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So anyway, I didn't know what that dash was, but I knew it wasn't. Uh, thank you very much. It's, uh, you're always very insightful. Thank you. Who else we got? We had Summer still in here? Got a hand up. <laughs> there she is. You're muted, though. <laughs> there you are. Oh, you muted yourself again. Ar- Arnold's hand is up. <laughs> I was going to say something. Oh, you're, oh, you didn't put your hand up? Arnold? Yeah. Um, Go. Yeah, Ar- Arnold. I'll uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, Dr. Silkworth. Um, that's a lot of history behind it. Um, so uh, the only thing I've, um, to me that is really interesting is that, um, yeah, I mean, he treated, um, about 5,000, I guess, 5,000, 55,000 alcoholics. And, um, he knew, he knew, um, the mental, right, the mental part, like the mental obsession, right, in um, in um, the physical craving, right, once. But I like what you said about the, your body. Uh, I don't know. Can you rephrase that again? That you, your body uh, wants a drink and your mind. Oh, you, you have a mind that condemns you to drink against your will and a body that condemns you to death. Right, right. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, that that, that was really interesting. Um, so it does make a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense only only if you're willing to listen. And, and it would make sense to an alcoholic. And it makes sense to Bill, right? Because at this point, I mean, if you really think about this, out of 5,000 or whatever amount, right? Of all the alcoholics, only Bill run with this information. Only he took it and run with it. He knew, like, what the problem was, right? And no, uh, I mean, think about it. He, they treated millionaires and all these rich guys and rich men. I don't know if it's mentioned rich women, but I'm sure there might be a few <laughs> in there. <laughs> but anyways, so the point is, what I'm trying to say is, so Bill, run, right, run with this information, but that in itself, that knowing uh, the problem part wouldn't keep you sober, right? Because he tried that. I think he tried it a couple of times. Uh, like he knew what the problem was, right? But that couldn't keep you sober. And so even, um, you know, my, my thing about... Uh, 
what I look back in history and, and, and I think about this is like, um, even the medical association, right, did not consider this a disease yet. Or even the medical sciences would say, well, we are spiritual, we can help. Well, they say, we don't have anything else. We don't know, you know, your condition is hopeless, right? What was that you said? It was the, that, that's what makes you hopeless, right? Um, and so no one, um, no one would really, and even the doctor, right? Even even Silk would, would say, look, I'm only going to say it's an opinion because uh, my ass is on the line and I can't say no more than an opinion, right? So I'm just looking back in the history how tough it was for an alcoholic, right? And Bill took it and said, hey, give it to me as an opinion. I'll take it. You know, let me put it, put it down on the book. Um, even though what it makes sense to him, right? It made sense. Look, I'm thinking about a drink. I'm on my way to get it. Once I take it, you know, I guess it's on. So, but it was tough. My, my, my look back in the history and, and the founders and, and even now, I mean, if you're willing, you're going to, even now in modern times, I don't think who you are, if you have this disease and you're not willing to listen, because that's all willingness, right? And open-mindedness and honesty. Like you, if, if I don't have that, I'm not going to be able to get to the problem, right? But what I'm saying is how tough it was for these people back then, right, to, to get this down. So Bill wrong with this information and said, well, it's a mental, social, physical craving, right? Once I take a drink, I can't stop. So he run with that, but that couldn't keep him sober, right, until he found the solution, right? He found the solution. Another piece of the puzzle. He found his friend, Abby, said, look, God is the solution, right? And, and of course, we're getting off topic, but um, I just, I don't know, I'm just looking back at, back in the day how hard it was. And even now, I don't know, I'm just grateful for, um, he put this two together, right? The, and, right, the problem, and then he had the solution, and he had the program of action because he only had the six steps. And I believe that he did... Um, Last visit at the hospital, he when he had the white light experience, and all of a sudden, how this man, uh, after had this white light experience, he wants to just he comes out of this white light experience and he wants to go help someone else. You see what I'm saying? It's like how does how does that happen? You just an alcoholic at the stock market. Why don't you just want to go out there and make a lot more money? He instead he said, "Well, maybe I can go help someone else." I don't know. That, that that's just part of. The, I don't know. That was just interesting to me uh, to see that. But anyways, that's all I got. And thank you, Steve. Um, super well, interested. You know, one thing. The biggest enemy of the first one hundred was the people outside of a you know, trying to adapt this new concept and understand. And nowadays the, the biggest enemy is our own fellowship a lot. I was at a, I was at a group the other day in the meeting after the meeting thing, having pizza and this guy was talking about his nephew, you know, going to high speed chase with the cops. And this guy has got 30 something years ago. He got to stop if he wanted to, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what 
you know, I'm sitting there going, you hear that? And what's sad is you get people that were a lot, a lot of, uh, quote unquote time that matters, but people will drop, they'll change their opinion. I've been meetings before where me and other guys have spoken like a book study discussion where we have spoken on the power of the book and people are like, yeah, okay. And then some quote unquote old timer will stand up and denounce everything we said and they'll just go with him because he's got the time, you know, that it's hard. It's, it's, you know, and I, um, you know, if you look at Docker's opinion, the main thing is, is we were just guys who had mental obsessions running around and so let's go, you know, that was just, but they, they, I believe doctors and medical profession knew that there was more to it. But if they said there was more to it, then they wouldn't make the money they made off of institutions on us. Because they, it's, it, it's, they, they could, like when they opened the inebriate asylums, they, it was all about building more and the grants they got. It's scary. It's scary. Uh, who has the next question? Or, or a statement? Summer, do you have something? I think, I think you're waiting in the wings a while back. <laughs> I mean, I have so much stuff um, written down, and um, thank you, Steve. That was that was um, awesome as always. Like so much just packed into these um, short but um, very concise pages. Um, I I had a couple like technical questions, and um, I apologize if you've mentioned this before to me or on a group. But with the um, amount of people that were first in involved with AA, is it a hundred or was it really 80 something? Well, they started writing the book, they had about 60. Okay. They started writing the book and when it came out, it was like 80, you know, but they said they were growing so quick. They said a hundred mm-hmm. and who knows, you know, I mean, I think it sounded better. Got to remember is the guys involved in it, especially Hank were salesmen. They knew they wanted to, you know, they're not going to say there's, here's a book by 40 alcoholics, you know, <laughs> they're going to say, let's roll, you know, let's roll with this. And I don't think that decision was made until, you know, um, right before the, um, book came out, you know, and matter of fact, I think Bill may have even been against the idea of putting a number on it, but those guys insisted. Do you have another question? Um, I honestly, I, I don't really have another question. Um, no, I don't, not right now. Like I can't even formulate my, all my notes. Um, I have to digest this (laughs) a lot. (laughs) Um, hope I say this person's name right. Is it Everly? Everly. Everly. Okay. Yeah, Everly. Thank you. Alcoholic. Um, Summer, thanks for inviting me. I had so much fun. Um, and Steve, this is fantastic. I have been listening to something like this that brings in the history and um, and all of the like the background and the big book, and it kind of ties everything together. 
because I wasn't really big in the history going when I was a kid. Um, but it it didn't really make much. There's so much I think I was missing on the setting of it all. Howdy, bud. Um, so I just really appreciate all of the information that you're kind of setting up and even giving like a time frame and what it was like around that the time, um, the time period and the difference like between the different assailants side along the and sorry, I can't remember the type of it. Um, the other type of dilemma was um, Anebra Asylum, is that what you said? Yeah, the Anebra Asylums. Yeah, they were, uh, I only discovered those um, maybe in the last few years where I heard of them, but I didn't really, I studied quite a bit on them. And there's a lot more I could say on them, but I prefer not to because it's pretty sad. Yeah, um, I totally understand. I get that. Because, uh, when I was doing my ancestry research, I actually came across family members that were in the asylum and I didn't really understand until it, like it just clicked on what was going on. Right. Um, and that side of the family has a lot of addiction and everyone passing away very early in life. Um, so they, it, it, it just was really eye-opening, and I got a lot out of this, and I just wanted to say thank you. Um, and I was hoping to get some maybe direction of where the previous recordings are going to be. They're on the, the YouTube channel, the Big Book okay. Family. You can find all our, our groups. Yeah. I can call you tonight. <laughs> okay, thanks, Summer. I mm -hmm. appreciate it. You know, the, the piggyback a little bit what she was saying about family is um, I, I, I'm, I'm branded off the word I want to use, but um, maybe someone will say, you know, when a, um, a parent basically wants to take control over their child when they're an adult, um, I can't remember what it's called, conservatorship or something like that. I forget what it's called. But anyways, it was a lot. It was really easy back in those days. Once your once your child's so it's harder nowadays to get that. You know, guys can show up to court and say to claim they're clean and blah blah blah. But back then, you know, I don't think you were you I think you, you could be considered adult sixteen in some states, but and it, eighteen was drinking age, but that's here nor there. But the main thing is is that if you started to get arrested and you got in trouble, your parents could take back, you know, they could, they could hold parental rights over your head and they could basically say, you know, I, all I does bail him out. He does this, he does that. And they'll put him, you know, but you know, put him away and they'll put him in institution and they couldn't come out unless the parents signed it, even though the guy's 40 years old, that's, you can't do that anymore. You know, yeah, that was happening back then. And, you know, when I went to uh, a family reunion in North Dakota years ago, um, 
my uncle was there. He's passed away years ago, but he was a, a genius at family trees and all that. He explained a lot of, a lot of cool stuff. And he would say, yeah, that guy, you know, what happened to him? Well, he, he, he spends life in a, in a institution. I'm like, really? And I'm thinking like, what is he like kill people or something? And he would say, no, he's a drunk, you know? And it was just, you think about it. You think about how many chances they give the guy. <laughs> the hell was that? Funny guy. Well, uh, yeah, that's great, Walter. No. Throw it back in, Rob. <laughs> God. So. Steve, did you say conservatorship? Conservatorship, yeah, that's what I meant to that's say. What that's yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah, it was a lot easier to do that back then. I don't think they used the word that word yet. But you, if you, and if you had a teenager that was into drug, especially pot, because pot was a devil's you know drug, whatever it was, you know, and basically. Um, Basically, uh, you could your kid could never be declared an adult, and your parents could you know it's almost like you're saying your kid's like incapable, almost like handicapped. You know, yeah. it, it was crazy back then. It was absolutely crazy, and and you got to remember is if you read if you read we um, working with others, it talks about going to court, right? Now, we, you know, they have drug courts nowadays that we can go to and, and you can, you know, take someone there, but the judge ain't going to hand them over to you, you know. Um, but that's what was very, you know, the judges didn't want people to go into male institutions anymore, so they would hand, hand you over to someone to take care of. It's kind of like with Roland Hazard and that story with Ebby. Kicking, did you have a question? No, not a question, just a reminder of how it was back in the days in the late 1800 and the beginning of 19. Uh, they were at rehabs and to get rid of cocaine. Uh, they were medicine by heroin. <laughs> yeah. So. Anyway, they were talking, uh, at that time, they were talking about that addiction is a kind of an illness too, so, and I think that that's my opinion of it. I think that Sirkworth uh, were in contact with the Knickerbocker Hospital also, and they did a lot of experiments over there too, so, yeah. I'm so grateful for Sirkworth. I just love him. Well, we're grateful for you. Yeah. But is there anyone else that has anything they want to say before we uh, all go our separate ways for till tomorrow? I want to mention, so we have two groups tomorrow. We have one at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and it's 11 a.m. Pacific. And that's David G. and David G. who do our Wednesday night book study. And they're 
like two heads speaking. It's amazing. And then Summer's got her book study tomorrow night, and they're in Psychic every week, and she's got this essay. I say psychic, no psychic. I'm gonna say not psychic. <laughs> We've been doing psychic, and she's asked me to help her tomorrow night. Give her, you know, to do it with her. So I'm looking forward to that. And I think she's got Kathy uh, Howard's wife the next week, and then Kevin O and people like that helping her. So she's got a lot of good people, and um, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. So, and then uh, you know, and if you're ever free in the morning. Monday mornings, we had a really good um, lady, this uh, Nadia is from South Africa. That you can, if you haven't listened to it yet, go on YouTube and listen to her first two book studies, and she is awesome. She's just not just an amazing book study, she's an amazing person. And you know, I mean, uh, we we have book studies seven nights a week, seven nights a week, or five nights a week now. We have seven book seven meetings a week. And probably might add another one, maybe, you know, I say one more, well, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. So some, you know, it's, uh, some things, my grandpa used to say some things he put together and you never know, he, you never know what direction they're, they're going to go. That's the beauty of it all. So. I am going to head out, um, and I'll see you all next week. Um, check out our YouTube. This will be on there later tonight. If you want to listen to it again or check out Summers and how oh, Summers, you have something? Well, if you have to go, I can wait, but I was just, um, I was just, uh, my name is Summer and I'm an alcoholic and an addict that like kind of what, um, piggybacking on what someone else shared in the group also about like how Bill, I mean, was like sick and in, in like, you know, in bed and like the thirst, the, the first thought that came to him was like an altruistic thought, right? Like how can I go and help other people? But I really like this paragraph. It's really important that, you know, after his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning the possible means of recovery. And as part of it, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics. I mean, how, I mean, how could he even know to do that? Like, I mean, I think about myself being in the hospital when I had my kidney stone. Like I would, I wouldn't know like to go tell other people about like how to stay away from kidney stone, you know, like that would be on my last, like I'm so selfish that it's like, that would be my last, I don't know, thought. And then also it's mentioned here so early on that impressing upon them that we must do likewise with still others. This this message is meant to be passed on. We're meant to sponsor and share the hope and, you know, what, um, you know, what our higher power has done for us. And, and look what it says is a rapidly growing fellowship. This man and over 100 or however many others appear to have recovered so, I mean, right there from the beginning, he's, I don't know. That's all I had to share. I mean, there's a lot of interest. I mean, yeah. I had a thought, and I don't remember. I forgot what it was. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, we had Arnold's got his hand up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what's, wasn't that right? That was right after he... Um, He've already gone to the Oxford group at that point, didn't he? Right. He, 
because I, he didn't just come up with he had already gone and knew the solution and the program of action he knew because wasn't it that what ab was doing was witness taking witnessing to people and saying look my problem has been solved and this is how i did it right and he 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 visited his close friend right his childhood friend which was bill but was it because I, I thought about that too, uh, Summer? That how does he just come up with that idea? Go out there and be helpful. That doesn't. That's that's the psychic change that must happen to us in order to go help someone else. But well, what, what I was going to say is interesting. Is is Frank Bookman, the founder of the Oxford Group? He had a spiritual experience, and the first thought of, of his mind was, "Well, I could help a lot of people with this." I think when God's involved and something's discovered where you get, you know, saved, the first thought is, because it's a spiritual thing, you, your mind automatically goes to altruism. You want to go help someone else. You want to give it, give it away. You know? Or does you have something else you want to say? No, that, that's it for tonight. We'll, we'll okay. get back next week. Super interesting. Uh, Everly, you have something? Just one last bit. Um, so with the kind of tagline um, on Dr. Silkwood's research that he's done and all that kind of information, like we've continued that research to this day and they've actually identified a, a gene that now are identifying if someone is an actual alcoholic and right. it's on chromosome four and with being genetic testing i have that and it is genetically within the body so it's not something that it's making up like it needs a spiritual experience it's not something you can just walk out not
You know, what's interesting is the disease of alcoholism. He he declared it an illness, but it took, you know, the U.S. completely ignored, or the medical association completely ignored that fact, and so AA ballooned it thousands and thousands and hundred thousand members and they were forced in 58 to declare the disease as well and that was kind of a double-edged sword for AA because then rehab started and a lot of people a lot of people came to recovery and it just got you know things happen so did you have something else oh I just I just got excited again because I mean it's the beginning but like Correct me if this is the wrong word, the synchronicity of like how everything is put together. And like, if it just one thing was off, like we might not be here. Like, what if it, you know, what if the the chief physician at this prominent hospital, you know, was not Dr. Silverberg, you know? And like, what if, you know, all, there's so many, so many different people and situations and events had to take place for all of this to happen. It's just exciting, you know, seeing this and it's like, um, the doctor that, um, you know, came in, came in to, um, to help us, Dr. Silkworth, he had to witness our return to health because other physicians and other doctors, they don't get it. You know, I mean, they, they I mean, I can go to a doctor now and say, I'm, I'm an addict and an alcoholic. And they're like, here's some narcotic, you know, like, I'm just saying that sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't, um, sink in so like I can just imagine what if it wasn't Dr. Silkworth what if it was a different someone like and he had to experience the sufferings of the, that that revolving door you know how people would come in and out and in and out and just like he knew that there was something different about us there was something different it wasn't that we were just doing it to escape from reality it wasn't that we were drinking because you know it was fun and all that you know we have something different and um I don't know. Just gets me excited to keep reading. So that's all. <laughs> One of my uh, best friends in recovery passed away a couple years ago with cancer was Dr. Mark. And Dr. Mark, um, I wish I saw his recordings. I am somewhere. But he, he, he was a emergency room doctor for many years. And he, when he got sober at like 35, went back and got his degrees and everything. And he was to the most amazing doctor's opinion, but he was the only doctor I ever met. You know, I don't know. I, you don't see many doctors in Alcoholics Anonymous that, you know, you don't see many, there's people not walking with PhDs and, you know, and, you know, I, I, I I'm, on, I'm like, for instance, I'm permanently disabled and my monthly payments I get from Social Security and nothing because I never, I never had a job. You know, I mean, I was loaded all the time. You know, as soon as I was up, that's the next thing I needed to do. And there's a lot of people like that, you know? And I mean, there's some of us that went from one job. Like my friend used to always say, the allergy obsession make you unemployable. It doesn't mean you don't have a job. Is you're, you're gonna take what what is the easiest thing to do, you know? What might make you money, you know? Under the table and all that stuff. And and some job that where you won't get in trouble or some job where everyone there is loaded. And like my like back in the seventies, my friend said, you know, he was working in refineries. And I go, Man, you know, that that was before drug testing, right? And he goes, Yeah, and he goes, Everyone there was loaded. You know, no and, and, and so no one cares. So it was it was like the wild, wild west. 
you know, and a lot of those places were like that. Now, you know, you know, but since the seventies, it's been a lot different because of drug testing in the eighties, since drug testing and everything, you know, and the one thing, Dr. Mark, where he's speaking at a 70 person rehab where they pass out psych meds like they're candy there. And some guy goes, you know, they tell me I'm bipolar and blah, blah, blah. And Dr. Mark, I never forget. If I would have said that they would ram me out of the building since he was a doctor, he said, if you have that diagnosis, you wouldn't be at this place. You'd be somewhere else. You know, and everybody went, ooh, you know, in the room. And it was like, you could feel like the counselor's coming going, you can't say that, but what are they going to say? He's a doctor. You know, that's why doctors' opinion is so valuable to us, what it says, you know. So, do you have anything else, Summer? You got to get your hand up. <laughs> well, um, I was I was just going to mention to Summer, you know, how you're saying if one thing was out of alignment, there's a couple things, a couple times I've heard now um, the cosmic chain of events. You know, if one thing was one link was broken, right, in this cosmic chain, we wouldn't be here today. And another term I've heard is the golden thread. You know, that thread would have been broken at any point in time. We wouldn't be here today. So I just wanted to say that. I, I went to this uh, place where the shaman guy was speaking, right? And he was doing it was meditation class. And he said, Every week he would get you to think about something for like 10 minutes. And he said, I want you to focus on one person. And that one person, if you never met them, your life would be totally different. Not a husband and wife necessarily. He goes, we're someone you met. And from that person, you were introduced to a whole different realm of people. And who I thought about with my second sponsor I had, I had two sponsors of the year. And my second sponsor, I met him and he took me to this rehab of 70 guys there and I met hundreds of people. And then I met other groups I got involved with, other groups. If if I had never crossed paths with that man, things would be different. There's always someone, especially in recovery, that we come across and be, wow, what would happen if I never met them? You know? You know, it, it, it's crazy to think of it that way, but it's true. You know. Anyways, I'm ready to go. My son's walking around the other room. I think he's hungry. So. Good night, everybody. Night. All right. Summer, you want to call me in a bit, or? Um. Yes, I am meeting with my sponsor at ten, though. So that's like fifteen minutes. I'll call you later since you're three hours. I'll call you. Right, I'll call you when we get off of here, real quick, and then like okay. I can figure it out. And I'll call you too tonight. Everly, are you going to be asleep or where are you left? She left. Okay, hold on. Let me just see what she said in this chat here really quick before you close it. Oh, divine intervention. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to let everybody 